Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome, Team Buck. Great to have you in the Freedom Hut today. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, If you just... Let's say you were on vacation without internet access and and all of a sudden uh, you came back and you were trying to figure out what's going on. Just based on the buzz and the excitement from the media, you would assume that the political equivalent of the Super Bowl was about to happen tomorrow. That the most uh, important, exciting, impactful, uh, momentous event of a generation was about to occur tomorrow. And of course, I'm referring to the testimony of the uh, rather tall former FBI director, James Comey, which is going to occur tomorrow. I've even seen on different networks. They have they have countdown clocks to this as though, you know, it's Comey's final countdown. Uh, This is not going to be nearly as interesting or as exciting as. I think most of those reporting on it believe it will be, especially because we already have a statement for the record for James Comey uh, to be given to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And I read through this today, and it was well, it was quite a fun game to play. You read through this, and then you try to guess what parts of it will be of particular interest, which parts of it will be highlighted by the 90% of the media that are Democrats, partisans, and and want to destroy uh, the Trump administration? And then, of course, which parts will be grabbed by the uh, Trump, Trump, Trump at all costs, never makes a mistake, he's my guy, and can do no wrong people in the media, which is also uh, a thing that is real and that is out there. Um, And uh, here's what I can tell you from what I saw. It's not as bad as the Democrats want it to be at all. In fact, it's pretty bad for the Democrat narrative that Trump is a colluding anti-American traitor. You read through this, you look at what's contained in the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence testimony that Comey is going to give. Remember, this is a preview of the testimony. We've got the written statement. And the questioning, I'm sure, will be uh, interesting to folks as well. That's where they'll be able to push. That's where the politicians get to grandstand. So they'll like that aspect of it a whole lot. Uh, But as I was going through this uh, today, um, I thought to myself, you know, this is just going to turn into everyone takes from this what they want to take from this, which is similar to the small bit of this testimony that we had a preview of by the press uh, telling us about it a few weeks ago, which was that Comey, uh, Comey said that Trump wanted him or was hoping that he would get past. I'll read you the specific language because people got mad at me when I was paraphrasing because the, the words really matter here. And I get all that. Right? But he, here's the ta- here are the takeaways, which you may have heard from 
Uh, everyone's giving their takeaways on this. And people give them instantaneously now on Twitter and the media, too, which uh, uh, Twitter is slowly slowly destroying journalism, I think, piece by piece for a lot of folks. They, they give away all of their best insights on Twitter, and then they have nothing to uh, nothing to write about later uh, unless they repeat themselves. Here, Here's what I would say about it. The narrative that Trump colluded with Russia... Um, is undermined by what's in this Senate Select Committee on Intelligence testimony that Comey is supposed to give tomorrow. Um, Because it's clear from the meetings, the various meetings that Comey had with with Trump, January 6th, uh, what else, February 14th. I've got the testimony run from March 30th. That was a phone call. April 11th, that was a phone call. It's clear from all of this that the president is legitimately annoyed about this Russia stuff because he doesn't he didn't do anything wrong and it's getting in the way it's slowing down his presidency it's it's doing what his political opponents wanted to do which is to mess up his presidency to slow it down to gum up the works to make everything move with greater difficulty to to engage in sabotage via media insinuation. That's what this is. And it's working, unfortunately. We get that from the Comey meetings. Now, as an aside, that Comey has this habit of writing down all of his meetings with the president of the United States. I find that interesting in and of itself. Um, I, I do know that in some cases the uh, FBI has been known to do interviews with suspects where they do a written, they write down their notes and that then becomes the official record. And there's, you know, that that's, uh, I, w- I would think that now you'd want it all to be tape recorded and not have someone just write it out. But uh, you have these handwritten notes by Comey that are, I, that are allegedly the basis for, well, I mean, I assume they are the basis for these uh, Comey notes. Uh, or for these Comey, uh, this Comey testimony. And here's some of the stuff that comes up, all right? So R- Russia, Trump doesn't think the Russia, th- Trump knows it's not real. He wants it to go away. And he also, I think, hadn't really yet acclimated to the transition from being a major, uh, somebody who is a, a big deal in the private sector, you know, being a billionaire and a media star, to being the commander-in-chief and the leader of the free world and the differences in in tone with people who work for the executive branch. I'll give you some of my details on that in a second. So it, it's overall, the testimony to me seems like it is on net favorable for Trump, but not all of it is great. Some people are going to tell you it's all great. That's fine. That's their opinion. I don't think it's all great, but it's not damning. It's not terrible. And it's mostly good. Uh, of course, we'll see what he says in the Q&A. Uh, by the way, I'm somebody who also doesn't – I'm always a little suspicious of anyone who has prosecutorial or investigative power uh, at a massive level and also has real uh, political machinations in mind. You know, Anyone who's a political operative who is either a prosecutor or a very, very senior law enforcement investigator, I'm just – I tend to be – Wary. That's all. It's. It, I don't impugn, but I. I am wary, uh, because those are the really the most awesome and fearsome powers that the federal government possesses from the perspective of a citizen. Right? You, you should be much more concerned about a politicized and vindictive attorney general and uh, and or you know assistant U.S. attorney or federal prosecutor 
Uh, that is is much more frightening to me than well anything else that the federal government really will do. Quite honestly, you know, I mean the you know the the, the EPA is super annoying sometimes, can fine you a lot, but it, it would have to be the Justice Department that throws you in prison. So it matters a lot when you have someone who is on the uh, in the DOJ, whether on the investigative or prosecutorial side, that is political. And I think Comey's a very political guy. And I am still not okay with what he did in stepping in front of the of the attorney general at the time, Loretta Lynch, because he thought it would look better for the institutions of the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the office of the of the, uh, of the DO, uh, office of the attorney general, the AG. Uh, I don't think that that was okay. I, I reject that, and I reject that rationale. Uh, but so here's some of what he says. L- let's just talk a little bit about this. And I know I'm, I'm, it's like I'm giving you the score of the Super Bowl before you have to watch it tomorrow. I mean, people are going to be watching this thing live. And, oh, gosh, Comey. And uh, this is we get so wrapped up in this. And I I am actually tired of the story. There are so many other things. And I will talk to you about other things in the program today. By the way, we will discuss what's going on with Qatar. We'll discuss the terrorist attacks in Iran. We'll discuss the follow up to terrorist attacks in Europe, we've got the phenomenal author Mark uh, Bowden on to talk about his latest book on uh, the battle, well, the Tet Offensive and, and Hue, uh, the city of Hue in Vietnam. And he's done five years of research into that. So, you know, we do a lot on this show. It's not just wah, 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 Trump is great or Trump is terrible or whatever, which I know a lot of, you know, wah, wah, wah. it's what a lot of people do on their shows. And that's fine. You know, it's a free country and they can do whatever they want. Um, but this is the big news item of the day. Right. So I want to give you my sense of what I think matters here and what doesn't. So here, here's from the testimony, which is a compilation. It's like a greatest hits of Comey's notes from meetings with Trump. And he's going to be reading these off to, I, I just, I think that the fact that he was keeping these notes shows that he, he, he likes to have, he likes to have a, an ace up the sleeve. He, he likes to, you know, leave a paper trail for himself that he can lean on later. And remember, it's a paper trail where he shapes the narrative. He shapes the tone. I work in media. I get this. I understand this, right? When you're the person that gets to describe a discussion or even just the context of a discussion, that has a tremendous effect on what the perception of different parts of that meeting will be, right? You know, I mean, this is like the difference between, uh, you know, if, if somebody if somebody overhears a phone call and they hear somebody say, oh, man. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to kill that guy, and and then they don't understand that he's referring to his brother who's running five minutes late for a surprise party. You understand context really matters, right? No one really thinks he's going to kill that guy. He's just, he's just venting frustration and using an idiomatic expression in English. People will say, you know, oh, I'm going to kill that guy. Well, you know, if, if it's in the context of speaking to a mafia, or, you know, speaking to a mafia hitman or something, different. Right. I'm, I'm going to kill that guy has real meaning. Um, but context really matters. Context really matters. And Comey is able to create the the context for these uh, interactions with Trump and then read them off. And, and that is the record now, which I think is very interesting. It also should be noted that, that you have a lot of media back and forth today on um, whether or not the conversations that senior government officials have with the president should be considered in some way privileged. This is an interesting, this is a new phenomenon. All of a sudden, the president can't speak to his top advisors without assuming that at some point 
they're just going to be asked in open session in front of everybody to say whatever they were telling the president or whatever he's talking. So, so the president no longer has the right of counsel within the executive branch. You know, I know he's not exerting executive privilege here, but people are now faulting some members of the executive branch who are not willing to just just, you know, act like they're gossipy high school kids and say, well, this is what was said at this time and this is what was said at that time. And we are running up against the realities of a president now who is besieged by a media that absolutely hates him. We've been running up against this for a while. But if he can't trust anybody around him, what's he going to do? If he thinks that anyone's going to just take whatever he says and either leak it to the press or it'll come out in open session, I, I think that's a problem for the executive branch. You know, I haven't even gotten into the text yet, and I know I've been going on for a little bit here. So uh, I want to work through Comey's, uh, Comey's statement for the record a little bit. We'll get into some of the uh, also the various senior officials that did testify today. Not about this, but of course it became kind of about this because that's the way the media plays it. And uh, then we'll talk about infrastructure and got so much, so much to hit on today. 844-900-2825. Piece by piece, we will walk through what's real, what's not, what matters and what doesn't in this James Comey testimony before it happens. A preview of the political Super Bowl, so to speak. The media is making this out to be. We'll be right back. What message do you have to Jim Comey ahead of his testimony? I wish him luck. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, he wishes him luck. I I meant to give you the takeaway, and I apologize. I should have given you the bullet points up front. Uh, Sometimes I get too excited when I finally get a chance to uh, to hang out with all of you, and and, uh, I get deeper into the weeds before I've given you the the, the overall overall impression of what we're going to talk about. Here's what comes from the Comey testimony, uh, from from my reading of it, and I read it a few times today. Uh, Comey did tell him three times that there w- that he was not under investigation. Trump clearly doesn't think that he should be under investigation, and does appear to be personally irritated and and offended by the notion that he would be under investigation for Russia collusion. Which the more you think about it, it's just ins- the whole thing is insane. Yeah, Trump was like working with the Russians. It's it's just nuts. Um. And he never tried to shut down the Russia investigation, okay? So he was told he was under investigation. He does clearly uh, indicate that, you know, he, he thinks that the the idea of his collusion, and now I'm reading between the lines, but the idea of his collusion with Russia is just complete nonsense. And he never tried to shut down the investigation of Russia, which, by the way, I mean, there are five investigations going on into this stuff right now, okay? There's a lot, so even if he had tried to shut one of these, uh, tried to shut this down, one, it wouldn't have worked. And two, uh, well, he didn't. Um, here's the part where you're going to see some people writing a lot of think pieces over the next 24 hours about obstruction of justice and abuse of power. Those two concepts, which I will get into as well. Um, you have Comey saying at one point, or that they talked about loyalty and honest loyalty. Here's what Comey writes. My instincts told me that uh, the one-on-one setting and the pretense that this was our first discussion about my position meant that the dinner was, at least in part, an effort to have me ask for my job and create some sort of patronage relationship. 
That concerned me greatly. Oh, concerned him greatly. Yeah, that concerned me greatly, given the FBI's traditionally independent status in the executive branch. I repl- Why would it concern him greatly, by the way? If that He can just resign. You know, a lot of these government bureaucrats, especially the more senior ones, seem to think that you know the government would cease to function without them. If you think someone steps out of line, resign and call them out. If you think the president's out of line, resign. And we'll get into that, too. Comey, Comey gets a little shady later on in this. Okay, sorry. Back to the text here. I replied that I love my work and, and was interested and intended to stay and serve out my 10-year term as director. And then, because the setup made me uneasy, I added that I was not reliable in the way politicians use that word, but he could always count on me to tell him the truth. I added that I was not on anybody's side politically and could not be counted on in the traditional political sense, a stance I said was in his best interest as the president. A few moments later, the president said, quote, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty. I didn't move, speak, or change my facial expression in any way during the awkward silence that followed. We simply looked at each other in silence. The conversation then moved on, but he returned to the subject near the end of our dinner. Um, so there you have it. Uh, I expect loyalty. And later on, they got into honest loyalty. That was what they, that was what they seemed to... Uh, agree would have been enough that 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 would be acceptable to both sides whatever that tends to mean but you're seeing there's a lot of parsing of language here and people trying to get beneath the the text to see in this what they want to see in this that's a a commonplace i think here um honest here we go he says uh you will always get honest honesty from me he paused then said that's what i want honest loyalty I paused and then said, you will get that from me. As I wrote in the memo I created immediately after the dinner, it is possible we understood the phrase honest loyalty differently, but I decided it wouldn't be productive to push it further. The term honest loyalty had helped end a very awkward conversation, and my explanations have made clear what he should expect. I mean, you know, Comey, wow. This guy is, uh, uh, he, he is getting to shape the narrative of the entire discussion and what he writes after the fact based on his memory and his recollection of the facts is now to be accepted as uh, the record. Uh, I would note that if anybody wanted to sit down with me and take notes on a conversation we were having, uh, I would actually much prefer that they just tape it. I, I, I would. Uh, and, and if they weren't going to take notes in real time, I would find it very strange that they would then just speak and then afterwards try to verbatim reproduce our conversation from that person's memory, which is what James Comey seems to be doing here. Now, do I believe that the president maybe said that he wanted his honest loyalty? Sure. I think this is the way the president talks. And once again, you get into this uh, separation between those who want to take the president uh, not literally but seriously and those who want to take him seriously but not literally. Uh, there are those who are trying to trip him up and look at this as a as a legal issue specifically. Um, they they view this as possibly obstruction, which would be a possibly a criminal matter. Although it's not even clear you could bring that charge against the president, but you could certainly impeach him or abuse of power. On the abuse of power thing, we'll get into that and also the exonerating parts of this testimony. The stuff that looks good for Trump in just a minute. Stay with me.
The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. With the firing of Jim Comey, a distinguished public servant, apart from the egregious, inexcusable manner in which it was conducted, reflect complete disregard for the independence and autonomy of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Watergate pales, uh, really, uh, in my view, uh, as, as compared to what we're, uh, we're confronting now. That is the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, saying that uh, this is worse than Watergate, uh, a term that has a phrase that has been used so many times by Democrats for so many years that it, it doesn't really have the the punch that they would like it to. But nonetheless, that's how they're trying to frame the situation. Worse, worse than Watergate, they say. Um, I have both sides of this now. Uh, are claiming victory after the Comey uh, remarks were published today by the Senate Intelligence Committee. You've got you got both sides, the, the pro-Trump and anti-Trump sides of this are saying that this uh, helps them out. President Trump's lawyer, Mark Kazowitz, uh, welcomed the FBI director's account, according to CBS News here, saying that Mr. Trump is pleased that Mr. Comey has finally publicly confirmed his private reports that the president was not under investigation in any Russia probe. And the statement goes on to say that, that the president feels completely and totally vindicated, and he is eager to continue to move forward with his agenda. So that's what the president is saying about this. Uh, what does the chief legal analyst at CNN... <laughs> Get ready, everybody. This is going to be fun. What does the chief legal analyst at CNN think about this? The president brings in the FBI director and says, please stop your investigation. If that is an obstruction of justice, I don't know what is. That is not what happened. Okay, let me get into the specifics here. He's referring to the part of this. Now, remember, on the good side of today and what the what the Trump defenders are pointing to here. Um also known as people who haven't lost their mind with hatred for the president. Uh, but what the Trump defenders are pointing to here is that um, three times true that uh, Comey told Trump he was not under investigation, that Trump is not under investigation for Russia collusion, and he never tried to shut down the Russia collusion investigation. Uh, on the honest loyalty part, people are going to try to make a big deal out of that and say, oh, you know, and Comey with his patronage thing. And look, he got fired. And he, why was he keeping these notes? I think he's keeping these notes because he wanted to have something. He wanted to have a little insurance policy for exactly this situation if the, if the president decided to fire him. And that's where we are now. So, OK. Uh, now let's get into what was really said here. You have the president. This is from Comey's testimony. And here's what he had to write. Because this is on the Flynn, the General Flynn firing slash investigation component of this. No one's saying that Trump tried to shut down the Russia collusion investigations, because there are many of them. But they are claiming that he tried to help out national, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn. And here's how this went down. The president then returned to the topic of Mike Flynn, saying he is a good guy and has been through a lot. He repeated that Flynn hadn't done anything wrong on his calls with the Russians, 
but had misled the vice president. He then said, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. He is a good guy. I hope you can let this go. I replied only that he is a good guy. In fact, I had a positive experience dealing with Mike Flynn when he was a colleague as director of the Defense Intelligence Agency at the beginning of my term at FBI. I did not say I would, quote, let this go. Um, So, you know, people will interpret this, I think, largely based on uh, how they view uh, the president. Right. The, the whole idea of I hope you can see this is this is the this is the key phrase. I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go. I hope he is a good guy. I hope you can let this go. That isn't a command. Right. That isn't let this go. I'm the president. And that uh, would be a problem. But that isn't a command. That's just the president saying what his you know, his his hope is here. Uh, but as you can see, they're going to take this, they're going to run with it, they're going to try to make this a very big deal. Um, and then uh, when you when you see this, you got Comey saying, quote, I immediately prepared an unclassified memo of the conversation about Flynn and discussed the matter with senior FBI leadership. Uh, I had understood the president to be requesting that we drop any investigation of Flynn in connection with false statements about his conversations with the Russian ambassador in December. I did not understand the president to be talking about the broader investigation into Russia or possible links to his campaign. I could be wrong, but I took him to be focusing on what just happened with Flynn's departure and the controversy around his account of his phone calls. Regardless, it was very concerning given the FBI's role as an independent investigative agency. Um... So he's saying here, this is this. Remember, this is all Comey's perception as well as Comey's recollection. This is what he thought and this is what he thought he remembered or this is what he thought about what he remembered. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Uh, He went on and and do note that he did not he did not raise this uh, and did not, you know, storm out, threaten to resign, anything like that. Let me read you what he says next. The FBI leadership team agreed with me that it was important not to infect the investigative team with the president's request, which we did not intend to abide. We also concluded that, given that it was a one-on-one conversation, there was nothing available to corroborate my account. We concluded it made little sense to report it to Attorney General Sessions, who we expected would likely recuse himself from the involvement in Russia-related investigations. The deputy attorney general's role was then filled in an acting capacity by the United by United States attorney who would not who would also not be long in that role. After discussing the matter, we decided to keep it very closely held, resolving to figure out what to do with it down the road as our investigation progressed. The investigation moved ahead at full speed. Okay, et cetera, et cetera. So a, a lot of Comey self-justification here, right? This was it was weird, but I'm not sure it was weird. You know, uh, this is kind of well, you make of this what you want to make of it. I mean, uh, first of all, I hope you can say I hope you can see your way clear to letting this guy go. I think you could argue uh, you could argue in in good faith. That seems to be much more of like a, an expression of of a, of a hope. Right. Look, I, I hope you can see your way because if you uh, if you don't see your way clear to it, then you're going to go forward and do what you're going to do. But I, I hope that's not the case. You know, I, I hope you don't have to criminally prosecute my 
former national security advisor. It's kind of what's that, that that's one way of taking this, right? But again, I'm telling you this so that you know, and I'm reading to you from the testimony, which if you want, you can watch it tomorrow, right? The main event, the Comey testimony. Uh, but people are going to take from this what they want to take from this. Uh, they are going to decide that that is either obstruction, which is the more extreme case, because that is a legal standard. And I, I do not think this meets the standard for obstruction, but I'm not a lawyer. Or abuse of power. Now, it should be noted, by the way, that this didn't shut anything down and no action was taken as a result of this. And it wasn't clear enough language that Comey was certain that he should raise it with the attorney general, Jeff Sessions. So how clear a command could it possibly have been? You know what I'm saying? I know we're kind of we're parsing. We're, we're, we're getting into the middle of these words and breaking it down and quotes and. But that's what you have to do because they're they're hinging the whole case against the president at this point on this Comey testimony. I mean, this is what's this is what's going to breathe new life into the let's call it what it is. This is this is all about impeaching Trump. And I think there's a desperation now to try to get the president via a process violation when they couldn't get him, when there won't be any evidence of collusion with Russia uh, that the president has been involved with. By the way, I mean, I think the president even noted in here going from memory, um, but that he said, look, you know, if there's somebody who did something that was bad, who was, you know, part of the campaign, but it wasn't on Trump's order, then he hopes that they find out who that person is. So, but this is all about trying to impeach the president. This this isn't about honesty. It's not about a, a full accounting before the American people. Um, and what Trump did in terms of firing the FBI director, we all know we don't have to go over this. That's completely legal. Um, and if, you know, if you want to try and see some nefarious intent in, quote, I hope you can see your way, your way clear to letting this go. Uh, you know, I, I just at what point is that, you know. At what point is that just you're going to see in that what you want to see? And that's all there is to it. It's not a direct order. He didn't Comey didn't see it as a direct order. It made him uncomfortable, but he didn't tell the attorney general if it was, in fact, a direct order. He would have been under he would have been obligated to tell the attorney general. and He did not. Uh, so th- that's that's the worst of it. And keep in mind that you know the, the, the reason that Flynn got into his position was because of illegal leaks in the first place. Right. So. Yeah, this is there's been so much uh, dirty business, uh, so much dirty, so much of this operating against the administration has been underhanded and and nefarious. um, And now they're just hoping to seize on something here. But it's not about the truth. It's about getting Trump, getting him out of office, removing him, destroying his uh, his. White House team, whatever they have to do, they will do. All right, there's some other folks that testified today. By the way, I want to get into some of that. And then, we're, we're, like I said, we've also got author Mark Bowden on the show talking about his book uh, on the Battle of Hue uh, and during Vietnam. And we've got uh, Joe Concha from The Hill will be talking to us about just how the media has completely lost its mind. Jonathan Shanzer from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies will be joining to talk to us a bit about the terrorist attack in Iran today, as well as what's going on with Qatar, small uh, Arab country, uh, Gulf state that has gotten some rough treatment from its uh, its 
Arab state neighbors recently based on allegations of support for terrorism um, and uh, some other things that I just feel like we should talk about, too. So there we have it, my friends. Um, 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Let's hit a break. I'll be right back. Comey's clearly a, a political player, everybody. I That's that much I, I state without uh, without any compunction. I think this is a guy. A guy's very, very much an operator looking out for himself and, and likes his role as, you know, America's last honest man or whatever. But uh, answer me this. Why can't he tell the public that Trump isn't under investigation, but he can step in front of uh, the DOJ and take the heat so that Loretta Lynch doesn't have to for ending the Hillary Clinton investigation. Well, someone explain that to me. You know, in one case, he just takes it. He just has his discretion, takes it upon himself. He could have said that Trump isn't under investigation. Comes, it, it's clear in these notes that he, he he could have said that that the president of the United States is not under investigation for colluding with Russia, a hostile foreign country. Um, but he didn't. And I think that these notes are really, as much as anything, uh, evidence that Comey wanted evidence to use against Trump should the time arise. Because if it was so bad, he shouldn't have had to wait till being fired and for all this to happen. He should have resigned. You know, hey, at least what's her name? Sally Yates was like, you know, I'm out. I'm I'm a Democrat. See ya. You know. Uh, what she did was wasn't uh, wasn't right, but I mean she didn't last long, right? So she was she was open about her partisanship, moral. I mean, when it finally came to enforcing uh, Trump's travel ban as a head of DOJ, what she did before then, we well, who knows? Uh, Tom in Ohio on WWVA, what's going on, Tom? Yeah, good evening, Buck. You know, I I don't trust that uh, Robert Mueller is going to do an unbiased uh, job either. I really think that we ought to have two special prosecutors, one to uh, look into the Trump situation, one to look into the Obama-Hillary situation. Uh, Number one, I don't want it just tit for tat of, uh, okay, uh, we we had impeachment uh, hearings and uh, forced Nixon to resign, and then we had impeachment hearings for Bill Clinton, went from Republican to Democrat, now we're back to Republican, so 10 or 15 years from now we'll go after the Democrat. If we go after both parties at the same time, we're putting them on notice that we're not going to put up with this crap from anybody. Also, we eliminate by having two special prosecutors, we eliminate any uh, bias that one person may have either way. And then in addition to that, I strongly think the guy that's going after uh, Trump's situation would probably probably finish up in about four months and find out there's nothing there. But going into uh, Obama's situation, I mean, I made a list of about 15 things that I think are questionable. Uh, and, uh, you know, that could take four years. And, uh, uh, at, you know, at the end of it, we I think we'd find out that by comparison, Trump is pretty much squeaky clean. Well, uh, I, I think I don't think he's got any Russia collusion. That's for sure. Uh, well, all I'm saying is, I, I, all I'm saying is, Buck, that I, I really think that it would be worth the money to, to, you know, put a stop to this and saying, OK, the one side wants a special prosecutor. Fine. We'll have a special prosecutor for both sides and go after the present administration and the previous administration. And I think I'll put an end to all this crap. All right, Tom. Thank you very much for calling from Ohio. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I will say one thing, and this is maybe my moment of uh, of, of uh, a plague on on uh, on both parties' houses, you know, uh, so to speak. Um, it's just, 
everyone wants to criminalize everyone else all the time now. I mean, we're always looking, people are always looking for these investigations. Um, uh, you know, they're looking for these investigations to happen and, and they're hoping that they can throw their political opponents in prison. Now, now with Hillary Clinton, I know that's a little different because I don't think there's a stretch there. I mean, that's not a, oh, she, uh, it was a, it was a minor thing or it's an interpretation of the thing. I think that what she did was, uh, you know, she should have been held accountable and she wasn't. Uh, but you see this all the time now with with investigations. Look, I, I will say it, and I don't know if a lot of other conservatives will, but after a while with Benghazi, it was clear that we weren't going to, that the only real uh, accountability for Benghazi was going to happen on election day for Barack Obama's reelection. And the, within a, a year or two after that, we had found out most of what was going to matter. And it, it dragged on and on to the point where, rightly or not, the public just wasn't able to focus enough on it for it to matter. And by the time we found out that, yeah, well, what we knew in the beginning, that they lied about it and everything else, so much time had passed that you know, it wasn't going to have much it wasn't going to have much of an impact. But everybody wants to it seems to me not everybody, but people are very quick to uh, want to imprison somebody from the other side. I mean, the criminalization of politics now is becoming rampant. It's it's not. Uh, and this is this is the way they're opposing Trump. You'll notice Democrats aren't making a case about uh, they're not making a case about Trump's agenda and what they would offer in its place. They're just saying Trump is a traitor. He either he or some of his people need to be thrown in prison. That's it. That's the that's the anti Trump case. It, it was that he was a racist and a xenophobe and all that and sexist. And, you know, don't vote for him. And then it just turned into, well, he's a traitor and, you know, he's obstructing justice. So we need to impeach him and or throw him in prison. I mean, these aren't the arguments of well-adjusted people. Right. Um, But, you know, I just want to as a general principle, I don't like, oh, let's just investigate the other side because the federal government has endless investigative resources. (laughs) They can just keep investigating everything forever. And I think that's what the Democrats are planning here with Trump. I think they're going to say, you know, that they view this as uh, they're, they're never going to really get to the bottom of this. I mean, there are five investigations happening right now. This is going to be going on for years. So we'll have to choose to not be completely consumed with talking by about it. More coming. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. It's toxic to our society, but it is increasingly true that that everything is political now. There's no escape from politics. Look at ESPN, right? Look at... uh, Look at Marvel Comics. Look, everything is now infected with uh, a political uh, political aspect, a, a partisanship that it's it's inescapable. And unless you're going to just disconnect from the internet and decide that uh, you know you're going to go live on an island somewhere, maybe you'd even call it the uh, the, the Freedom Hut. Um, oh, by the way, is that, uh, Yates uh, was fired. She didn't quit. Uh, thank you for that correction. <laughs> so important, important uh, note there, everybody. Uh, acting Attorney General Sally Yates was not in, did not, in fact, resign in protest. She she was fired for not being willing to do her job. Um, so quick correction there. 
Um, but <laughs> you have the announcement today of the uh, FBI of Trump's decision uh, with regard to the FBI director. He wants Christopher Ray, uh, who is currently at a law firm. By the way, isn't it amazing? L- lawyers run the country. You know, people that are lawyers are in all these positions of tremendous power and authority. And when they're lawyers at like such and such and such and such, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's some lawyers listening now. Uh, people make lawyer jokes. And, you know, there's a whole a whole discussion to be had about the eth- ethics of the legal profession these days and billable hours. And there's a lot of interesting stuff there. But then when they go from becoming a lawyer to FBI director, a judge, a U.S. attorney, uh, then there's then there's supposed to be this superhuman leap into now they're beyond reproach. You know, I just think it's I just think it's interesting. I'm I'm, I'm just asking questions. Uh, so anyway, here we go. We've got a guy. He works at a he works at a law firm now, um, and uh, he was at the DOJ for a while. He was assistant U.S. attorney uh, under President George W. Bush. Blah blah. Went to Yale Law School. All that stuff. Okay, great. So he does that, and even that is uh, fodder for the Democrats to get upset about something. Here is uh, Democrat Mark Warner, who had the following to say about the announcement. We finally have an FBI director announced, uh, well, a a pick announced. He has to go through the confirmation process. But uh, here's here's what was said about this. But clearly, this is an effort by the president to try to distract attention from our hearings today and our hearings tomorrow. Yep. So there you go. Uh, to distract. I don't think it's going to be a very effective distraction tool. I, I think that the White House uh, is, for the media, damned if it does, damned if it doesn't. Meaning if they try to go about their business and push forward with the plans the administration has, the reasons why Donald Trump, uh, why people voted for Donald Trump, if they do that, uh, then it, he's trying to ignore the situation with the investigations, ignore the Comey testimony. And if he digs in on the Comey testimony and and pushes back on it, uh, then he's, you know, not acting in a presidential fashion. He's doing he just he, he can't win. These people, they just they just hate him. They just hate Trump and uh, they, they won't get beyond that. And look, I'm not the most ardent of uh, Trump supporters. I support Trump, but I don't support everything. And I don't sit around and just talk about how everything he does is brilliant. Uh, This discussion he had with Comey, it should be noted as an aside uh, that the Comey, uh, that that Comey is known. I was seeing here by a congressional reporter. I was going to pull it up. I'm forgetting who said it now. Pardon me for that. But Comey is known for... uh, Theatrical and cinematic flourishes in his writing of meetings. I see here, and uh, this is no uh, this is no exception. What we see in his his descriptions. I mean, very very vivid. I mean, Comey. It's like he's trying to get a screenplay made in Hollywood. You know, there I was staring down the president. I mean, you could actually see the Comey memos and think about how if they made this into a Harrison Ford, uh, you know, Tom Clancy movie. I always think of Harrison Ford playing uh, what Jack Ryan in the Tom Clancy in, until they had Ben Affleck do it, and then it was all over. And also they, they changed the bad guys in The Sum of All Fears to uh, neo-Nazis with, like, you know, 
tight shirts on and and uh, dyed blonde hair, I think, if I recall. Or am I confusing it with James Bond? I can't remember now. But anyway, uh, Tom, if they made a new Tom Clancy novel, you could see how this would all go down because it, it is it is theatrical in that sense. Comey's like, oh, I knew immediately that this was incredibly awkward. And, you know, we stared and there was a bizarre silence. And uh I I'm I don't think that this is normal and people might try to tell me that this practice of writing down very detailed memos of discussions with the president uh I I don't think that that is a normal thing to do but maybe I'm wrong um uh, so there we have it with Comey and uh, all the people that are trying to one way or the other uh, make this about the president and make it about whether he should be impeached because that's what we're going to see tomorrow in much of the uh, the testimony you also had some other. Uh, I wanted to get to this. You had the uh, you had NSA Director Mike Rogers today uh, testifying before the Senate, and uh, he said some pretty interesting stuff. Uh, they were talking about collection authority, intelligence collection authority, and and how that all goes. But of course, that often turns now into a discussion about Trump and about uh, whether there was anything illicit going on over the last year with regard to surveillance. Here's what. Uh, Mike Rogers had to say, I am not going to discuss the specifics of any interaction or conversations. I may or can may you, not, can if, you if I could finish, yes, sir, please, that I may or may not have had with the president of the United States. But I will make the following comment. OK. In the three plus years that I have been the director of the National Security Agency, to the best of my recollection, I have never been directed to do anything oh. I believe to be illegal, immoral, unethical or inappropriate. And to the best of my recollection, during that same period of service, I do not recall ever feeling pressured to do so. So he's saying that he didn't he never was told to do anything that was wrong here. And he also uh, doesn't want to discuss the specifics of conversations he had with the president. I I, I don't see why that should be such a problem. I, I think the president should be allowed to have conversations with top officials that are then not shared uh, w- with the entire world all all the time, right? It, it, isn't that reasonable? It seems to be reasonable uh, to me. Um, you also had uh, Director of National Intelligence Coates uh, ask some questions, and here's what he had to say about it. I do not feel it's appropriate for me to, in a public session, um, in which uh, confidential uh, conversations between the president and myself. I don't believe it's appropriate for me to uh, address that uh, in a public session. I, I I would agree with him. But you'll notice that once again, the political uh, the political leanings of the reporters that are looking at this and, and how people react to this are apparent because when Sally Yates was testifying and she was asked point blank, is there evidence of collusion? She, she said, um, you know, I cannot address that here. And everyone said, see, well, she's just she's just protecting sources and methods. Uh, and OK, so she's protecting sources and methods. Meanwhile, the DNI Clapper was like, "Nah, there's no I don't see any collusion. So he's the director of national intelligence. And he's like, no, nah, I didn't I didn't see any of that. So he can speak to that, apparently without violating any classification protocol. Sally Yates, act, former acting attorney general, won't speak about it. And people came to her defense, if you recall, right away. They're like, oh, well, you know, she's. She can't. She would love to tell us the truth, but she just can't tell us the truth because of her oath to the Constitution, right? That that was the response you got on that. But people were uh, giving Rogers and Coates today a tough time, including Senator Senator John McCain. 
It's, it's just shows what kind of an Orwellian existence that we live in. I mean, it's detailed, as you, as you know, from reading the story as to when you met, what you discussed, etc., etc. And yet, here in a public hearing before the American people, we can't talk about what was described in detail in this morning's Washington Post. Are you asking me <laughs> comment on the Washington integrity of the Washington Post reporting? <clears throat> I guess I've been around it's town long enough. It's pretty detailed. I guess I've been around town long enough to uh, say um, not take everything at, at face value that's printed in the post. I served on the uh, committee here and uh, often uh, saw that uh, information that we had been discussed had been reported, but that wasn't always accurate. So I, I will actually agree with the sentiment that we do live in a bizarre world now where stuff that becomes public is still classified, but they won't tell us if it's classified, but they won't talk about it. So then we know that it's classified because if it wasn't classified, they'd be able to talk to us about it. Right. So you, you just run in these endless circles. And clearly the the newspapers, uh, for the most part, uh, think that they're interacting with or are interacting with either current or former senior government officials that are giving them this information. And so if they convince, I mean, at, at what point are we just, I don't even know who we're trying to fool. If something is, you know, for example, the the General Flynn uh, leaked information about the General Flynn conversation. So so we, we can or cannot talk about that. I mean, you know, the guy's lost his job over it. It's been in every major newspaper. But if you have a, a U.S. official that has access, right, that's always key, uh, that has access or could have access to that information, um, they, they won't say, they won't confirm or deny, right, uh, one way or the other. So we're making political decisions. This is the world we're living in right now. We are making political decisions. We are asked to make political decisions based on information that comes from the government from what we know, but the government won't tell us that it's real information, and we just sit there and, you know, how can we have any transparency? How can we come to the proper conclusions um, when, if something's on the front page of the New York Times and everyone believes it to be true, at what point does the government have an obligation to stop pretending like this isn't common knowledge and just come out and start talking about it, right, or, or, or tell us something one way or the other? Uh, they haven't really figured this out yet. Um, you know, I, I know there's a tension here. It's not easy. I'm not suggesting this is an easy situation, uh, but I, I, I have been saying along. I think the president should declassify a lot of stuff here. I think that would make that would make uh, a great deal of sense. I mean, just so you know, the, the government does hold some pretty uh, logically untenable positions. I mean, it, it, the government will even sometimes claim that when a government official has spoken to the press about something. Uh, and, and you know, somebody has done this and, and they know that the government officials done it. It's been in the open. And it's a person who would know, let's say, like a president or a president's top advisor. It still doesn't necessarily mean that it's not classified. And you're like, I mean, come on. Right. At, at what point do we just want to just pull our hair out, um, which would be a shame. Don't do that. But uh, this is this is the bizarre. I, so, you know, Mc, McCain is giving these guys a rough time, but they're in a tough spot. And I understand that. Because if they speak about some of this stuff and Democrats don't like what they say, then all of a sudden it's, oh, it's classified. But if they don't speak about it, uh, then they're withholding and they're not they're not being honest and forthcoming. And, you know, so it, it's got you either way.
And that's why a lot of this stuff, a lot of this Senate and uh, these committee hearings, it's just all theater. It's all meant to give us the appearance of honesty and transparency from uh, from within the government. But, you know, people are pushing agendas. Senators, congressmen, they're grandstanding. Uh, you know, I, I mean, a lot of the time they ask questions they know they're not going to get answers to. And that, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, the senators have access to sensitive and classified information. So they'll ask questions in an open session that they know they can't get an answer to. But if they got an answer to it, would they then hold the person who answered it responsible for, for you know, disclosure? I mean, I think that I think they would. But this is the why the senators ask them. I mean, you see, it's just all it's all theater, man. It's like it's like puppet stuff out there sometimes. Marionettes, people pulling the strings. So frustrating. I, I hope I'm. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go as detailed and deep on this stuff as I possibly can for all of you. I also just, the endurance that it requires, the psychological and intellectual endurance that it requires to just keep wading through this Trump-Russia nonsense. It just dominates the news. And so from the perspective of analysis and commentary, you're, you're just like, this is stuff is all over the place. Ugh. But we got to do what we got to do, team. Shield's high, right? I'll be right back. Let's talk about some positive political news, my friends. Let's talk about some good things that are happening in the country now. Trump and Russia and blah, blah. Uh, The president was doing his thing today out in Cincinnati, giving a speech on infrastructure and uh, also touching on health care this kind of stuff I, I would like the president to be doing instead of having to defend himself and uh, get into Twitter battles and all the other stuff all the other nonsense that's going on um well I guess he picked some of those Twitter fights let's be honest but nonetheless uh, he was out there in Cincinnati I've you know I I am embarrassed to say this I just realized I don't know maybe maybe this is too much honesty folks wait am I I want to make sure I'm right here yeah I've never been to Ohio never been just just it's never happened i should i should really go out to ohio i should spend some time there um so i've certainly never been to cincinnati but the president was in which i hear is the uh the pittsburgh of ohio that's what i hear about cincinnati um so uh the president was talking about infrastructure investment and here is what he had to say together we will fix it we will create the first class infrastructure our country and our people deserve. My new vision for American infrastructure will rebuild our country by generating $1 trillion in infrastructure investment. Our infrastructure program, a lot, a trillion. Trillion dollars of infrastructure spending uh, with 200. He says he's going to use 200 billion dollars in public funds. Look, we had an infrastructure expert on yesterday to talk about how this would go. And he says the implementation is essential. And that's clear. Right. Obama's stimulus was uh, just a, a big uh, cash a cash grab for a lot of leftist and Democrat aligned interests. So the way you do this really matters. But here we'll see. The president has uh, held himself up as a builder, and he obviously has a lot of buildings with his names on them and has been involved in construction projects stretching back for decades. So this should be his sweet spot. This should be an area where I think he's able to uh, get a lot done, and uh, I'm hopeful that it will happen. I I do find it uh, amazing that there are some of the infrastructure challenges in this country that we have. I mean, that at cost, for those of you who don't 
you know, the Acela Corridor is something that is referred to in, in the press because it's basically where the press lives. And the Acela Corridor is uh, Boston to D.C., but the, the three main stops are Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C. for the Amtrak high-speed train, which is not even really a high-speed train comparatively to other countries. And, you know, I have friends, a friend just came back from Switzerland recently, uh, other friends came back, come back from Japan, and they're like, you know, I'm in America, and I, I feel like, you know, because we're America, we like to think America is number one, and it is number one, but it is not necessarily number one when it comes to roads, bridges, public infrastructure. That's all, that's all uh, a little bit shakier, in some cases literally, uh, than I think we would like to admit that it is. There will be some discussion, though about how we're supposed to take as conservatives who are concerned about the spending that this country is engaged in, uh, spending a trillion dollars to pay for, or sorry, spending $200, $200 billion in public funds uh, to pay for at least a good portion of this. Um, that's not, a, that's not a, a, an insignificant, that is not a trivial amount of money even by federal government standards. So I think there may be some degree of pushback on that, but not much because people really just want to see the president do constructive. I, yeah, that's right. I said it. Constructive things uh, with the presidency. And I think this would be a place where we could see some really good things happen. But yeah, the Acela, it's like $300 if you take the actual Acela round trip from Boston to D.C., and uh, it's not even that fast. And you're like this. And this is supposed to be the like the flagship. Never mind the flagship of Amtrak. You look at what's going on out in California with trying to build high speed rail there. And uh, it is uh, an, an epic disaster. Um, we'll see if people view the government's projects or the government's hand in these projects as reasonably efficient. I think it will. It will change and challenge some of the views on what government is good at. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this is going to be an uphill. I'm not going on a limb at all. I know I'm being sarcastic. going to be an uphill climb, uh, even with, with Trump's previous uh, previous experience in, in building and being the great builder. Uh, remember, we still don't have that wall at the southern border either. So there's a lot of building to be done. We're going to take a break here, team. We'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. We've got David Harsanyi, senior editor at The Federalist, joining in the fun in the Freedom Hut today. Uh, great to have you, David. What's going on? A lot's going on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I've been talking about the Comey testimony, and and I know that this is now this has taken up all the oxygen in the room. I, I'm at a point now where it, it's almost you know you know if you weigh in on this, it, you're just jumping into the middle of of the of the food fight of the of the century. It feels like here with American politics. Uh, what do you make of it? What what's re- what's real? What's not after today? <laughs> well. It's shifting very quickly, right? Every five minutes, it seems. But I mean, from I, I think for if I were a Democrat and I were talking about impeachment, which I think has been a big mistake for them, I'd say that this testimony, at least what we ha- know of it now, uh, undermines a lot of the things that Democrats were hoping would happen. I mean, uh, he, Comey, 
says in, in this testimony that he did tell Donald Trump three separate times that he was not under investigation and that, uh, you know, nothing in there looks like obstruction of justice to me. I will say, I think Donald Trump acts inappropriately and says things he shouldn't say, which could be abuse of power, but I don't think he's obstructed or there's no evidence that he's obstructed justice or that he's colluded with the Russians. In fact, he actually is mad that Comey isn't moving faster on the investigations. I mean, that's literally what he's, he's saying, at least according to Comey in that testimony. And what did you think, as somebody who, who has uh, his own literary flair, but you're a writer, so you're supposed to, what do you think of, of Comey's uh, little notes here? It, it does seem like he's, he's uh, creating the screenplay for, for his next big picture. I actually thought it was kind of flat, and, and I was a little weird, weirded out that he used words like hooker instead of just saying prostitute, since it wasn't a quote and stuff like that. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's surreal in a way because presidents typically don't act this way, and you know, you know, he's definitely a weird uh, set of events. But you know, I, and I do, I don't think Comey's a liar or anything like that. But I do think that he watches his back and he likes, you know, he has a flair for the dramatic in the sense that he likes these sort of events. In a way, you know, this reminds me of when he came out and he sort of scolded Clinton for like a half an hour and then said that she hadn't done anything criminal. In, in essence, he's come out and done that as well here. He's saying Donald Trump acts in all these terrible ways, but really I don't think anything here is criminal. He literally says that he doesn't feel any pressure. He didn't think Donald Trump was putting any pressure on him to drop the collusion investigations. And I think he's boxed himself into a, a little bit of a corner with if if it was so if what Trump said was so bad, then it's inexcusable that Comey wouldn't raise the problem to the attorney general. I mean, that would be his obligation. Right. So he, he goes I, into this kind of self-justifying. Well, I didn't want to mess up the investigation. It, it makes it sound like he's like, eh, you know, I, I didn't want to stir the pot too much. It's like, well, you know, well, it just all comes off as like, you know, covering his own butt basically taking notes. I thought, I mean, I had read that he had taken notes, you know, he's a meticulous note taker his entire career. Meanwhile, he says he's only met President Obama twice in, you know, personally, privately, and he never took notes when he met him. So it's just this weird thing. But listen, I get it. If I were dealing with Donald Trump, I'd take notes as well. I'd probably try to record things if that's legal. I don't even know. But um, the fact of the matter is, as much as you hate Donald Trump or you d dislike him, there has to be evidence that he did something worthy of impeachment. That's what we're talking about all the time. And I don't see anything like that here. Um, I don't know. And what are your expectations for tomorrow? I, mean, I, I feel like so we already have the testimony. People are going to ask uh, Comey a bunch of questions. I'm sure some of them he'll defer. He won't answer. I'm sure other, you know, what, what do you think? I mean, I wrote like a list of like 100 questions that he should be asked. He should be asked about unmasking. He should be asked about uh, whether they use this um, dossier for, you know, for, for in a FISA court and things like that. I, I'd want to know about that. And I'd want to know what you just mentioned. If this was worth writing down, if it's worth having public testimony over, why wasn't it worth uh, quitting over or bringing to the attention of, of, of people, you know, the oversight committee, um, you know, before, why, why now, why not then, if, if you felt it was such a big deal? And if you didn't feel like it was a big deal, then is it obstruction? Do you think he was trying to obstruct your investigation? Um, I'm not a lawyer, but when you read about obstruction, I just don't think that saying, hey, you know, maybe, maybe you'll let this guy slide is enough. Did he ever do anything, did Donald Trump or any of your superiors ever do anything to impede 
or, you know, stop you from, you know, accessing information or witnesses or anything like that in this investigation? And if the answer is no, I'm not sure where Democrats go from there. Is the political heat, in your estimation, higher now than really at at any point during the Obama administration? Or is that just maybe the perception that some of us who are now, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I'm pro-administration, I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican, so it feels like you're, you're on defense a lot here. Uh, are, are things more acrimonious now, or do you think that's just the perception because now people are on the other side of it? I think when you're staring at a you know tweet deck or Twitter and you're on you know working in politics, it might seem that way. I think because because of the me- listen, I think it's because of the media in, in a sense that they they have taken on the opposition role, which they should always have taken on, but they've taken it on in a very uh, hearty way, I guess I'd say now. But I do think that in 2010, when Obamacare was about to pass and the Tea Party first blew up, I think it, it was comparable to this in many ways. I think people were really angry. Um, it's just that they didn't have the entire media on their side, you know, so it looks a little different. But when I walk away from Twitter and I walk out into my neighborhood, people aren't acting the way they do on Twitter. You know what I mean? I don't think that this consumes every minute of their lives. I think they just check it out once in a while and they're probably unhappy, but I don't think... You know, I don't know that in everyday America, people hate each other the way they do. And, you know, these political people hate each other. Well, there's definitely for those listening, definitely do not expect to have a a civil discussion on social media with people you don't know about Trump. Uh, You know, do do not think that that's going to go over well. You know, and and even moderate opinions, I think now are uh, are are treated as as a form of being a, a traitor to one side or the other. There's no, I think, what was it? Neil Cavuto was saying that he was a little critical in his monologue on TV of some Trump tweets. And even though he's supportive of Trump, people that you know, Trump supporters came out and they just hammered him for, for this. And I'm just like, this this does feel like the new normal now. I mean, you're either all in or you know you're you yeah. no longer exist for for people that agree with you on 90 percent of stuff. Yeah, I feel I feel like that every day in a way. I mean, if you're saying, listen, Donald Trump is abusing his power, he shouldn't say stuff like this. It's wrong. I, w- I would be on your side if you said that. And I and I, I would want to be part of that. I don't like executive abuse. I, I want the independent FBI to exist, etc. But once you make it about impeachment and you go over the top and you're hysterical about everything, then I can't be on your side anymore. So it's it's difficult. It's difficult to be to try to obviously I'm on the right generally, but I, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to lockstep with anyone. So, but it makes it very difficult to, to try to have a nuanced opinion on everything because right away they throw you in one camp or the other, everything pivots on Trump's tweets. Where do you side on, on them, you know, and that's not healthy for a political, uh, debate and it's not healthy for the country what is the most uh, we're speaking by the way to david harsani he's a senior senior editor at the federalist david what, what is the most interesting non-trump story to you right now in the news <laughs> well that there's going to be a sunni shia war in the middle east is a pretty interesting we're going to be getting that in the next hour okay yeah what do you think <laughs> i don't know enough i mean listen i i follow it and uh it seems like this has been brewing for a while and uh and it seems like a dangerous situation but um I'm certainly no, you know, I don't follow close enough to have an expert opinion on it, but I think it's it's it seems to be increasingly dangerous. So uh, there was that terror attack in Tehran and things like that. I mean, if 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 that starts up, who knows where this all goes? So I think that that what's happening here undermines our ability to deal with what's happening over there, and that's that's a problem as well. But when Trump says, as he he has been saying. 
by the way, here he, he says this is the beginning of the end of terrorism. Let's play that clip real quick. I've just returned from a trip overseas that secured more than $350 billion of military and economic investments into the United States. That means millions of jobs. And I want to thank the king of Saudi Arabia, King Solomon. Spent a lot of time together, and they're doing a great job. They're going to be doing something very special. You see it with terrorism, the funding of terrorism. It's going to stop. Got to stop the funding of radical Islamic terrorism, and they're going to stop. Uh, I I appreciate the positive sentiment, but I, I think that anyone now who's paying attention to the struggle that we're in the midst of with uh, jihadism uh, would be well. They're already aware of the fact that it's a long. This is going to be a long fight, and, and nothing is going to stop. It just hopefully will lessen and eventually one day far far in the future it may in fact stop <laughs> yeah i uh i agree with that i mean a lot of the the, the money that flows into you know terror terrorist groups you know these are proxy fights that have you know aren't just about blowing up westerners but a lot of other things i mean uh you know, it's not the Saudi government often that funds terrorism. It's people who are in Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to stop. And, uh, you know, listen, it's complicated. And, and I, 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 if I have to side between Saudi Arabia and Iran, I, I don't know. You know, I guess I, I side with Saudi Arabia, but no one, everyone's a gangster over there, basically. So uh, it makes me nervous. Uh, what he's doing, but I hope he knows what he's doing, <laughs> but I don't think it's going to stop. I think we're going to be in this for a long uh, time. And, you, and if you look at Europe now, you see that things are not stopping. In fact, they're accelerating in a certain way. And uh, I think that that's incredibly dangerous, especially if there's a, a really big event over there, a terrorist event, God forbid. So I'm, I'm happy that he's positive about these things. And I hope he knows something the rest of us don't. But I, I just uh, I don't understand how, why he thinks that. Do you, can you give us is, is there any uh, any moment of uplift here, or any ray of sunshine that David Harsani wants to offer people across the country? <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, go outside and you don't talk about politics and the wonderful things are happening. The New York Yankees are uh, on top of their game again, which is excellent for everyone in America. Uh, you know, it's beautiful outside and, and things happen in your life. And those are the things that matter. Right. I mean, uh, I, I don't think I think people who are obsessed with politics and treat politics as a religion uh, are, are unhealthy in their lives. And uh, I, I think uh, we have better things to think about. I, I agree. In fact, I, people should just listen to this show and that should be the right. politics that they engage in for the day. And they're done. So, David Harsanyi, everybody of The Federalist. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you. Also read The Federalist, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. Also go to thefederalist.com <laughs> and listen to Buck Saxon Radio Show. And that's right. all you need. All right, everybody, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. It's not just people in the media, you know, all of us live our lives under some degree of, of surveillance. Um, your phone uh, lets people know, well, the authorities can know where you are. This is actually going to court right now uh, based on your cell phone's positioning. Uh, you walk around on the street, you will be uh, filmed likely on uh, security cameras, whether police cameras or private uh uh, private surveillance cameras that are out there for security purposes or you know, any number of things. I'm always amazed at how uh, cavalier uh, people are when they t will take out their phone 
and they'll want to like put up a, a video on uh, what are the Instagram or Vine or any of these things, and they'll be they'll have their video out and they'll be recording somebody's conversation nearby, but they don't you know eh, who cares right? So they don't realize that or they're not thinking about it. They're just trying to take a video of the restaurant or whatever it may be, and uh, so people may not realize that there are conversation that's being picked up and. Just we we live in a in a in a total surveillance environment, really, um, and uh, that's something that we are we all learn in different ways at different times. I mean, if you're in the media, you just have to kind of get used to it, and you know, assume all mics are always on, um, more or less. Even though, if you're carrying a smartphone, by the way, I'm not trying to make you paranoid. Maybe I'm trying to make you paranoid, but I'm not trying to make you paranoid. Uh, if you're carrying on a smartphone, you're carrying on a microphone in your pocket, right? As you know, as well as a video camera in your pocket that is constantly pinging cell towers and there's an exchange of data going on. Uh, and yeah, so it's with that in mind that we, I think some, we see these uh, these viral moments on uh, that, that'll make their way around social media and then they'll make it to traditional media as well. Just a reminder that we live in a different era now. I mean, I, I think if you were... A, uh, a an attractive young female news broadcaster in like the 80s, you may have been able to get away with a a crazy drunken uh, rant because it was very likely that unless somebody had a had a home video camera with them on the street for some reason, that it would just be people's recollections of it, and their recollections. Uh, are not necessarily enough, right? But if there's video of it, if there's a video of you completely losing your mind and being abusive and disgusting and horrible to police and to bystanders, that's not good. Uh, that is that is a that is a career ender. And uh, for Colleen Campbell, who is a Philadelphia local Philadelphia reporter um, at uh, WPHL, formerly of WPHL 17. This is what the audio, the video has been viewed millions of times now in social media. There are bleeps, by the way. There's some rough language in here. We bleeped it out. Um, but here is what uh, some of the exchange in Philadelphia over the weekend went like. Play it. Yeah, I, I just want you to take her. I just want you to take her. Or what? Okay. Or what? How about that? That's why nobody likes That's okay, ma'am. I, I don't worry about that. Idiots in this Town. All right, you, you get the idea. I mean, she goes on for it's it's a five minute long video in which she uh, is cursing and and it's just so abusive uh, to police. By the way, the police officer does deserve some kind of uh, some kind of commendation for just taking all. I mean, just verbal abuse from this woman who was clearly uh, inebriated uh, from the from the video. Um. But what I think is so anyway, she she forgot that people whenever there's a, a commotion now, someone will pull out their smartphone and videotape it. So that that's changed now. This is a new part of our world, a new part of our of our day to day, and that that can be uh, it has good effects. But I think this has an enormous impact on crime and on on people's behavior in a good way, uh, which is not often talked about. But I think that the change in technology has made has made us all actually a lot safer. Um, but what I thought was interesting here is in a sort of Kathy Griffin-esque moment, um, we are now being told that Ms. Campbell, uh, who was the woman in the video who goes on for five minutes saying horrible things and being verbally abusive to the cop, 
uh, is receiving threats and threatening messages and defamatory insults and all this stuff. So now uh, this is the, the new the new crisis response when you have a, a viral moment that goes really bad, whether you're Kathy Griffin with that photo or this woman with her. Uh, berating of a police officer for five minutes. It's on, if you, if you type it in, it, it's on Facebook. I mean, we could probably put it up on um, on BuckSexton.com. We're going to have to do a lot of bleeping because the language is horrible that she uses. I mean, it's like really bad. So we might, eh, we're not we're probably not going to put it up because like, she says some really bad stuff. Uh, and we don't have time to bleep all of it. But she's claiming to be a victim now. Um, so you go into, when, when you have completely self-nuked your career, uh, the go-to now is to talk about how people are being mean and insulting you and, and to go into a, 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 a cocoon of victimization um, and say that, you know, you're the real victim here. I don't know. I, I don't think it's going to work in this case. Uh, she spits on some guys. Terrible. But like I was saying, all mics are all mics are always on and basically there are cameras everywhere. But don't be paranoid. And by the way, and before we get to the next hour, David Harsani's advice about, like, go outside, take a walk, hang out with friends, go hang out with your loved ones, watch a good TV show, that is so important. It really is. That's the stuff that really matters. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Team, coming up this hour, we have uh, Mark Bowden, author of uh, Killing Pablo, by the way, about the hunt for Pablo Escobar, fantastic book. Uh, Black Hawk Down, perhaps most famously, uh, Guests of the Ayatollah, and his new book, which we'll be talking about, uh, Hui, uh, 1968, which um, I will talk to him about coming up here in just a little bit. We also have Dr. Uh, Jonathan Shanzer to talk about this terrorist attack that happened in Iran. The Islamic State has claimed it. So terrorism hits Iran. I know the irony there for a lot of people because the Iranian state uh, sponsors so much terrorism around the region and is really a terrorist regime. But uh, there are of course, the people in Iran, uh, the average everyday uh, citizens and civilians deserve our sympathy, uh, like anyone else does in a terrorist attack. Uh, we'll talk about why uh, this is going on, what happened there. Also, Qatar, a small Arab state in the Middle East, has been, uh, well, has gotten some tough stuff from its neighbors, including Saudi Arabia. Um, they're saying that it supports extremism and they're cutting it off. Uh, from diplomatic relations and even from usage of airspace. Uh, so we have that. And oh, and also our friend Joe Concha is joining from the Hill just to talk about how the media is insane. That'll be fun. Um, Amir in Georgia. What's up, my friend? Do we have Amir? Assalamu alaikum. Oh, hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. Uh... When the uh, British uh, military drops bombs in Syria, uh, Afghanistan, that uh, Iraq, uh, no British citizen uh, uh, cries about uh, the innocent uh, uh, Iraqis, uh, Syrians, uh, people from Afghanistan that uh, died because of uh, British uh, military bombs. 
So you're asking me, why is it that people don't get upset about what happens uh, in war um, as collateral damage, uh, as unintentional damage? Why don't they get as upset about that as they do about the intentional murdering and slaughter of civilians outside of a war zone? You need me to explain that to you? I mean, I'm happy to. This is actually worthwhile. This is one of the important fallacies you will uh, you will come across and you will hear from many in the anti-American left. They will say that because the U.S. has been involved in military operations abroad, specifically in the Middle East, and because sometimes there are civilian casualties, what is the difference? Uh, well, this is uh, sort of similar to saying, why do we get more upset about somebody who is uh, murdered during a bank robbery than we do somebody who just happens to uh, you know drown in the bathtub? Intent matters here the 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 choice of civilians as a target to kill is not something that the u.s military the british military or any of our allies uh, engage in they don't say we're going to go kill as many people as possible to make our point we're involved in combat operations in warfare but you can understand the difference between uh trying to kill you know if you're defending your home amir and you shoot a gun and you're trying to shoot the person that's in the middle of a home invasion, and you miss that person, and you hit somebody in the next house over, that's different than if you just go out and shoot somebody for no reason. You get that, right? I, I do, but it's, it's not the uh, Iraqi uh, 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 person uh, dropping bomb on... on, on, on well, I mean, the, the Afghan uh, government, I mean, the, the government of the people of Afghanistan that, that voted for that government... Uh, they they are working. I mean, they want the coalition to stay, right? I mean, in the case of Iraq, uh, there's also an elected government that is an ally of the United States. So when we're assisting them in combat operations, it is as a guest of and as an ally of those countries. And you know, I think it's interesting that you you're equating these things. So what would be your takeaway from this? That anyone can kill anyone because people kill people? I mean, when you when you remove moral culpability from the equation and when you remove the intent of the action uh, away from what happens just death is death and people die everywhere so what difference does it make you're creating a as i said a a fundamental fallacy that then just leads to nihilistic murder and anarchy that anyone could you know i I could say i don't like this country's policy so i'm just going to go kill a bunch of people because this country has done bad things in this other place um, war zones are also different than non-war zones, right? There are active hostilities and conflict is something that in the civilized world we understand there's a difference between that and what's going on with countries that are at peace. Um, I mean, I, I hope I've answered your your question. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that this is uh, a version of what I've heard many times before, which is that Americans only care uh, when certain people are killed, not when other people are killed. I mean, clearly what terrorists did on the streets of London is uh, about as reprehensible an act as any human being could ever commit. Uh, Trying to drop a bomb on people that are trying to do that, by the way, in Afghanistan, cut people's heads off, murder civilians, and hitting the wrong people by accident is not the same. These these are not morally equivalent. These are not things that can be uh, pointed to as as similar. And unfortunately, with that, my friend, I actually have 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 to leave it. Um, I hope I answered your question. I'm not sure it was a question that was asked in. Uh, anyway, well, there we have it. Um, I was actually going to talk to you guys about Green Mountain, uh, not Green Mountain, sorry. Uh, what's the name of this college again? I'm forgetting. 
Evergreen, sorry, Evergreen State College, but uh, that'll have to wait for tomorrow. I've got an update for you on that, but I went a bit longer with that caller than I meant to. So we will hold that for tomorrow because we've got Joe Concha calling in. I've got a bunch of guests lined up, which means that I can't uh, I can't extend this segment much longer than, um, well, I've, I've got to go into a hard break here in a second. But we will talk about Evergreen State College tomorrow, and... Uh, we will give you a, an update on it that I'm sure you will find. We're going to talk about the course catalog there. And I think you will find that to be uh, illuminating about many things. Um, but we've got Joe Concha, Mark Bowden, Dr. Shanzer all coming up. Take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, team. We have Joe Concha joining us now. He is a media reporter and columnist for The Hill. Joe, great to have you, sir. Buck, I don't see you anymore. Actually, I see you all the time. Yeah, we get to, we get to hang out off the mic, which is always good. Uh, see you see you in the green room. Joe, Joe is a is a friendly and and fun fellow. Everybody, so he always he always brightens up your day when you get a chance to hang out with him. Uh, Joe, talk to us. Let me ask you this. Actually, I want to start with a very broad proposition because I've gone into a lot of the details today of, of the news cycle. Uh, do, do you think a lot of the media has actually just like lost the plot and uh, not even saying which side of the aisle they're on necessarily, but it seems to me like most of the media has just gone kind of crazy recently? I had some folks here today who are apolitical who asked me what I did, didn't even know who I was or anything like that, and they said, you know, we just don't know what to trust anymore. We don't know who is being truthful, who has an agenda, no one knows all this information is being thrown out. Like with, with Comey today, it, you could pick out any little part of that memo and, 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 and come away feeling good. So if you're a Trump person, you say, see, he wasn't under investigation. If you're anti-Trump, you say, oh, my God, it's obstruction of justice. He pressured Comey to uh, end the investigation. Wait a minute. I mean, it's, it's just insane. It's, it, there is no middle anymore. It's just pick a side, run with it, and just try to play to your core base. That, that's, that's how media works today in 2017. Buck. Yeah, I, I know that you look at the, the remarks— and and if you come out, if you come at this like I'm a conservative, so I always think it's unfair when uh, people from some of the some of the big TV journalists out there who clearly have opinions in this, but sometimes they want to wear the journalist hat and sometimes they want to wear the opinionator hat, right? But I could tell before they tweet or they go on TV exactly how they're going to respond to the, these Trump revelations. And I think there's a fundamental dishonesty that some pla- that that some places have yet to grapple with. If you have anchors who are going on TV at night. And they're saying, uh, look, we're just just the facts straight down the middle. And then their Twitter on one side or the other is just a screed of politicization. I think that's an issue. And I think that people are right not to trust the media when that's happening. And it is happening at a bunch of places. I think, Buck, Twitter has become sodium pentothal for people trying to figure out whether somebody is objective or not. So you could see the New York Times White House reporters, for instance, Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush, uh, and they claim to be objective and they claim to be down-the-middle reporters. And then you go to their Twitter feed for about eight seconds, and you see clearly that's not the case, obviously, with Thrush, because he was shown in WikiLeaks last year for sharing stories in advance with the Clinton campaign on several occasions. So, yeah, those are just two examples. But even like a CNN who, whose PR person last week said, uh, we're the last nonpartisan channel out there as far as news. And you just look at the studies showing that 
their coverage is something like 93% negative towards Trump and only 7% positive, which is the highest of any outlet, newspaper, or broadcaster otherwise. So I don't mind if you're partisan. I don't mind if you have a strong opinion, if you take a side. But just admit to it. And don't go around trying to say, like your CNN, that, hey, look, we're the objective network. We're the ones who are impartial. No, you're not. You've got an agenda, and you're playing to a crowd because that's what gets you, you think, anyway, better ratings. I like the old CNN personally, but that's just me. Uh, I, I have uh, you know some, some former CNN colleagues from when I was a contributor. I mean, one, this is public, so I don't mind talking about it because he does it publicly. Like Jim Shudo, whenever I will tweet something, you know, my sense of things, and I I tell everybody I I voted for Trump. I am a Republican. I am a conservative. I do opinion and analysis. I am not claiming to be a reporter or a journalist. Never have. He's a correspondent slash reporter, and he will always come after me publicly, mind you, on Twitter to say something that is snarky and anti-Trump. And I'm just like, well, well, if you're doing this, why do you think that people don't recognize that you have a bias? And I don't mean to pick on just him, although he does it publicly, so it's obvious and anyone can see it. But this is true of, as you said, so many New York Times reporters, everybody else. And yet there still is this weird, uh, they like to act sad and offended and, and wounded when we're like, well, you're partisans too, guys. <laughs> right. Shudo's a great example. Because uh, what's his exact title over at CNN? Is it something like a national? senior national security correspondent? I believe. Thank you. So if you go to his bio, CNN.com, and you read about Jim Shudo, it doesn't mention that he worked for the Obama administration in the State Department and did so until 2014. It does, like a closing paragraph says that he had worked under some ambassador to China. Uh, but it doesn't mention the name Obama. Like, you really would have to, like, if you're a regular just reader or watcher of CNN, you'd have to connect a lot of dots to understand that this person once worked for the previous administration. I get that happens all the time, but should that person really be your national security correspondent when he's clearly compromised? He's clearly a Democrat. He wouldn't work for an Obama administration if he wasn't. So that's the problem. You had these people billed as experts. They're supposed to be nonpartisan. But if you look at their history, they've mostly worked for Democrats. So what do you think you're going to get? Yeah. And one other thing I remember is I, I would sometimes sit there and just do counterterrorism analysis, and I would try to be nonpartisan, but people on panels would recognize me from when they're asking me political questions on other shows and other things, and there was, a, there was an inherent hostility <laughs> because, you know, you, you can't be a Republican who then does nonpartisan expertise analysis, but basically all of the networks except for Fox have people doing that all the time. That seems to be the case. Now, now people say, oh, my God, now what do we do if the media is just totally anti uh, this administration, they clearly are. I mean, what, what does that mean for Trump? I don't know if it means a hell of a lot, because I remember that The Hill, right before the election, Buck, we compiled 59 major newspaper endorsements right before the election, and we found that 57 to 59 had endorsed Hillary Clinton. And that got her a concession speech. In other words, the impact being told how to vote, why you should vote for this particular candidate in local papers all across the country had no effect on the actual election. So that's that's where you got to take solace if, let's say, you're a Trump supporter, because at least nobody's they're watching the media, yes, and ratings are up and all that, but they understand it's infotainment, and no one really takes it seriously, particularly when there's a bombshell every day that turns out to be maybe not a bombshell and is based on unnamed sources. You don't know the agenda of the unnamed sources and if they have a motive and what kind of access they have to the president and so on. So that's, that's the thing. Yes, it's negative towards Trump, but then again, the impact is more or less gone.
We're speaking to Joe Concha. He's media reporter and columnist for The Hill. You can read his latest at thehill.com. Joe, I have a theory, and that is part of the media frenzy surrounding Trump, because it's only part, because there are a lot of reasons why they hate him and want to bring him down. But to that point about their influence and power, I think they view this as the Nixon-Watergate moment. Uh, in fact, they some of them view this as even more profound and powerful, perhaps, than that. Uh, and, and so they couldn't stop Trump from being president or from winning the election, rather. But if they can stop him from finishing out his presidency, it will be reinstating, in a sense, uh, their ability to mold, shape and even dictate perception. And, and I think they view it as nearly existent. Not when I say they, not everybody, but a lot of the media views this as almost existential for their careers. Wow. That, that's a great point. I mean, after Watergate, trust in media was at 74% of the American people trusted the media. Wow, that's a huge number. Uh, that's now, Gallup's going to come out with a poll in, in a couple of months. It'll probably be somewhere in the 20s. Uh, it's at 86% mistrusted by Republicans, 70% by, by independents. Uh, so to your point, yeah, I think obviously they want to take down Donald Trump because they hate him. But also it's very good for business. If you actually had, let's say, an impeachment trial or this special counsel goes on for two years and there's more unnamed sources dropping these nice little narratives every day to add another page to the chapter of the Russia folly or fiction, nonfiction, wherever you stand is how you see that story. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's really the thing because – the better business is, the more you get promoted, the more money you get paid, the more people get hired, and so on. So it's good for business when there's an administration in turmoil, and uh, business is very good right now, regardless of where you work. I mean, you look at the U.K. and the system that they have with, or I shouldn't say the system, but the perception, at least, of newspapers. You know, people know that you've got a Tory paper, a Labour paper, a Conservative paper, a Liberal paper. Uh, it, it's just out there in the open, at least, with the newspapers and I'm amazed that in this country, the the establishment of journalism still pretends like the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, they hold themselves up as nonpartisan institutions. And to anyone paying attention, that's just that's just crazy. <laughs> crazy is the word. No question. I mean, look, they, look at where these places are based. Right. I mean, CNN headquartered in New York. Uh, New York Times, obviously, New York, Washington Post, Washington. Uh, how do you think those cities voted in the last couple of elections? I mean, it's not like it's 60-40. It's like 90-10, 85-15 in the people that work at these places. Uh, there's a peer pressure, right? I mean, I see it with any time a Trump surrogate goes on. I'll use CNN as an example again since we're both familiar with it. Oh, yeah. People are out there. Uh, the the goal within the building is to be not just tough, let's say, on a Sebastian Gorka who was on with Chris Cuomo yesterday, but to be obnoxious, dismissive, and actually condescending. Because if you are anything but that, then you don't get a gold star and a pat on the back in the building because that is the peer pressure that's within the industry now, that you can't be remotely objective towards the administration. I think Jorge Ramos said it best. He said neutrality is not an option when it comes to covering Donald Trump. And he won a Cronkite award with that sort of... Yeah, but at least he was... He is on Honest in his dishonesty, I will give him credit for that. At least he's willing to come out and say what is true of so many others. Right, right. But the problem is uh, he won't uh, step down from his positions at Fusion and at Univision, which is he's an anchor. He's supposed to be like, you know, a, a Lester Holt or in the olden days a Walter Cronkite. He's supposed to be the objective guy, and that's what yeah. he's touting. And then what does the establishment and media do? They give him the most prestigious award in journalism. I couldn't believe it when I heard it, but uh, Jorge, uh, good for you. Another mantle on the on the trophy show. Sounds about right. Joe Concha, media reporter and columnist for The Hill. Uh, check out his latest at thehill.com. Joe, always a pleasure, sir. Come back soon. Mr. Sexton, thank you, sir.
team. Uh, I'm going to head a break. We, we've got uh, Mark Bowden coming up with his new book, Huey, about the uh, famous battle from Vietnam. We've also got Jonathan Shanzer on the situation in Qatar. So stay with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, team. We are joined by our friend, Dr. Jonathan Shanzer. He is senior vice president at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And before that, he was a terrorism finance analyst at the Treasury Department. Uh, Jonathan, great to have you. Thanks, Buck. Good to be with you. Okay, let's start with the news of the day. But I, I do want to get to the, the, the Cutter fiasco, what's going on over there. But, but first, uh, there was an, atta- an attack in Iran today. The Islamic State has claimed it. Just tell everybody what happened, and let's get into the significance of this. Sure. There was a, uh, an attack at the Majlis, which is the parliament building uh, in, uh, in Tehran, in the capital, as well as the mausoleum of Ayatollah Khomeini, the, uh, the, the founder uh, of the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, back in 1979, who died uh, 10 years later. Uh, the attacks uh, were essentially uh, at gunpoint, AK-47s and pistols. Uh, there were, I think, 20-something people killed and 40-something people injured. Uh, it was a crisis that played out in the streets uh, of, uh, of Tehran, What's uh, sort of interesting about it, obviously, we condemn uh, the killing of innocents, but of course, Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism in its own right. And, um, you know, I think, uh, unfortunately, it got a little bit of a taste of the kind of terror that it sows in other places. It's a very rare thing to see terrorist attacks take place in Iran itself. Now, why is that? Why doesn't the Islamic State, because we know that ISIS, uh, as a, a Sunni extremist jihadist group, Hates the uh, what do they call them the Rafida right the uh, non the heretics from within the Islamic faith. Why would they now, when they haven't in the past, why would ISIS attack inside Iran? So this is a fascinating story. But basically, Al Qaeda uh, has declined to attack Iran for all of the years that it's been in existence, dating back to the uh, early to mid 1990s. Uh, and the reason for that is that Iran has provided uh, shelter and safe haven and, in some cases, other assistance, training, funding uh, to, uh, uh, to al-Qaeda operatives. And, you know, we've seen, uh, for example, that some of the 9-11 hijackers uh, traveled through Iran on their way to, to carry out these attacks. The Treasury Department, where I used to work, has issued designation after designation of individuals, high-level individuals who've sought shelter uh, inside Iran. And even some of the bin Laden documents that were found from Abbottabad also indicate that bin Laden saw Iran as a sort of a partner, and he implored his fellow jihadists not to attack. Well, al-Qaeda is not attacking Iran right now. It's the Islamic State, which is kind of a rival of al-Qaeda. The Islamic State has no compunction about this. Uh, They're not the ones who've been receiving shelter and training and assistance all these years. Uh, And they see Iran uh, as heretics, as Shiite enemies, as people who are fighting against them uh, in Syria and Iraq. And so uh, it was, in my opinion, only a matter of time before an attack like this took place. And uh, it's just one of the bits of fallout that we're seeing now as a result of the split within al-Qaeda um, and, and the rise of ISIS. 
Do you think that this is uh, a one-off as signaling mechanism to other Sunni extremists that ISIS are essentially the, you know, they're, they're the biggest, baddest, crazy jihadists in, in, uh, in the Sunni world? Or do you think this may be the start of a longer campaign aimed at actual uh, destabilization and, and continued terrorist operations like this inside of Iran at the hands of the Islamic State? I would be surprised if this is the last time that we see this. I mean, you take a look at what ISIS has been doing across Europe, and, you know, there was a time where I think we thought uh, that ISIS's, uh, you know, attacks on the West were not going to, you know, that they weren't sustainable. But, of course, you look now at what's been going on in London and Paris and Orlando, and, and, and we, we know otherwise. I would uh, I would expect there to be more of these. I think the difference is, of course, is that Iran is an authoritarian state. Uh, it is a police state. So it'll be harder for ISIS to infiltrate Iran uh, just because the security services are so pervasive. I think the IRGC will be on high alert now in Iran, and they will likely be able to stop some of these attacks. And we've seen a few instances where the Iranians have claimed to have uh, you know, uh, rolled up cells that were operating inside Iran. But I would certainly expect the uh, ISIS, particularly as they lose ground in Syria, as they're about to lose their capital in Raqqa, we've been expecting uh, individuals, fighters from ISIS to spread across the Middle East, to go home to where they're from, or to find new areas where they wish to fight. I can't imagine that Iran isn't on one of those hotspot lists. We're speaking to Dr. Jonathan Shanzer, uh, who's at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, uh, this attack at uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, uh, uh, Dr. Shanzer, what, 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 do we, what do you make of this? Just a, another crazy jihadist uh, saying he's doing this for Syria and the Islamic State? Or what's the takeaway? I mean, I think the takeaway here is that uh, that that Paris is uh, is under attack, that London's under attack. I, again, I think that what we are seeing is the fact that ISIS is beginning to lose ground. We are seeing a uh, an organization that is. Tr- that is transforming itself into something that is more akin to the al-Qaeda terrorist group that we've been fighting for years. In other words, one that has sleeper cells uh, in the West, one that has affiliate groups around the Middle East. Uh, This is the kind of thing that we should have been expecting. Uh, Some of us have been warning about it for quite some time, that as you dislodge a terrorist organization from its its headquarters, from its home base, it will become more diffuse and it will become more difficult to fight. This is the challenge that we, I mean, it will be good news when, when ISIS is dislodged from Raqqa, but it will be bad news in the sense that we're going to have to fight it on many other fronts. The situation in Qatar that just broke this week is getting all kinds of, of news coverage. Uh, just bring everybody up to speed on, on what has happened with this this tiny you know, Arab state that now is getting a lot of heat from other Arab states like Saudi Arabia. Well, you know, a lot of people are saying that this is sudden, and, and it's not. Uh, the, uh, the news attention is sudden, but... The, the... That's right. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, the, the story is, is a longstanding one. I mean, uh, you could actually argue that it dates back to the 1991 Gulf War, where the invasion of, uh, of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein in the 1990s and the different ways that the Arab states responded. I'll, I'll, I'll spare you about a decade of the history and, and, and maybe fast forward to 2011 uh, with the Arab Spring. You had essentially two kinds of Arab states, one uh, that wanted to try to maintain the status quo, and we could include Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Arab Emirates, Bahrain, you know, the traditional monarchies and and autocratic states. 
And then there were then there was Qatar and Turkey on the other side. These were the guys that were the proponents of the Muslim Brotherhood. They were trying to disrupt the regional order. When there were uh, protests on the streets, it was the Qataris and the Turks who were trying to fan the flames uh, of uh, of that unrest. And so you saw this real heated division emerge between uh, these Muslim countries. And uh, when Mohamed Morsi was finally kicked out of power in Egypt and the Egyptians and the, and the Saudis and the Emiratis gained control, they were really angry uh, at the Qataris. Uh, we we actually saw a severing of diplomatic relations in 2014, uh, but the hatred never went away. It was papered over for for some time. Then fast forward to when Donald Trump goes to Saudi Arabia, he implores the Saudis as well as everyone else in the region to drive terrorists out of their country. The Qataris are known to be harbors of terrorism, uh, not just Hamas, but the Taliban, as well as the Nusra Front, Muslim Brotherhood. And so the, uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis went on the attack. And uh, this has just escalated now to places I never imagined. The Qataris are now cut off from their airspace, uh, their uh, maritime routes. They, uh, their, uh, their real has dropped to 11-year uh, lows. Uh, they've been downgraded by S&P. I mean, they are truly isolated right now with one country after another cutting off diplomatic ties. What happened, though? Why now? Was this just the, the, the dam finally broke? I mean, you gave us the backstory here. This severing and all of these sanctions that went into place this week, well, it went into place this week. Why? Right. Well, you know, part of it was, I think, uh, the sense that Donald Trump had given a, a green light uh, to the Saudis to go after terrorism, and they were singling out Qatar because they are uh, they flaunt it. I mean, they flaunt the fact that they support these terrorist organizations, and it was they they put a target on their own back for quite some time. And the Obama administration kind of put up with it, uh, you know, against uh, our our, uh, our efforts to have them change the ways of the Qataris as well as many others. Uh, so that that's part of it. Uh, part of it came in the form of a hack that took place on the 23rd of May. Uh, we're hearing now that it may have been a Russian hack uh, where uh, they uh, posted some statements attributed to the emir of Qatar saying that, uh, that the threat of Iran was overblown, that the Arab states were overreacting to it, and that also that they were uh, throwing their lot uh, with Donald Trump when he did not have the political longevity that they thought he did. This, of course, made the emir of Qatar look terrible. Uh, he was furious. And a few days after that, there was an, uh, a cyber attack against the Emirati ambassador here in Washington. Uh, and, of course, the Emiratis did not take kindly to that. And within a day or two, we had the beginning of the uh, diplomatic severing of ties and that has uh, the the pressure has increased now with the cutting off of maritime routes and and uh, airspace and the like. So but overall, do you uh, think this is is this a positive development that the that the uh, Qataris are are finally getting held to account here, or is this not the way this should be done? Well, look, uh, I would say that it's escalated far beyond what I would have advocated for. I've been advocating for pressure on the Qataris for quite some time. I think it needs to be done in a measured way. I think the positive here is that there is a crisis. 
we need to resolve the crisis. In order to resolve the crisis, we have some leverage now, and we need to make demands on the Qataris to cut back on the support for Hamas and kick some of these figures out of their country. They need to stop supporting uh, jihadist factions in Syria. They need to stop destabilizing Libya. All these things I think we can demand. Uh, the question is whether the Arab countries are going to be willing to work with us to lower those tensions. This is going to be important that we bring things to a soft landing because, as you probably know, one of our most important air bases in the Middle East is based in Qatar. I don't think that the Qataris will cut us off, but we need to make sure that we can continue to fight from there. Uh, you know, our, it's, it's our forward base for attacking ISIS. So, uh, you know, I mean, this, this does explain some of the dissonance that we have. I should just note that down the street from this incredibly important air base, you have jihadists who are trying to fight. So that needs to be addressed. And I'm hoping that this crisis will give us an opportunity to do that. Dr. Jonathan Shanzer, Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, Jonathan, always great to have you. Thanks for your insights. And uh, we appreciate, uh, we'll hope, we'll, we hope you come back soon. Anytime, Buck. All right, team, hitting a break. We'll be right back. Team, I'm very pleased that we are joined by Mark Bowden. He is the critically acclaimed author of Black Hawk Down, also Killing Pablo, personal favorite of mine. His new book, uh, Hue, 1968, A Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam, is out, and it is excellent. Thank you so much for joining, Mark. We appreciate it. Thank you, Buck. Uh, please tell us about the book, Hue, 1968. What do you, what do you talk about? What, what do you go into? Well, it's, you know, I, I try to, in a way, tell the story of the war in Vietnam through this one very dramatic and important event in the war. And it's, in a way, it's not dissimilar from telling the story of the American intervention in Somalia by telling the story of the battle that took place in October of 1993. You, you take a very powerful and important moment and use it as a kind of a lens to tell the, a bigger story. And uh, this is the Tet Offensive. People uh, are familiar with the, the broad strokes. I'm sure some of the, some of the listeners uh, know a lot more about it than even than I do. But they know that it was considered a battlefield victory, but a media and perception defeat here at home, right? Yeah, I think that, and that's not a I think a fair characterization. Uh, it was, you know, and narrowly defined. I suppose you could call it a victory in that the. American forces and the South Vietnamese forces did take the city of Hue back from uh, North Vietnamese uh, regulars and the Viet Cong. In the process, they destroyed 80% of the city. Um, they uh, uh, Upwards of 10,000 people were killed, and it, it happened at a time when the American military command had been really pushing the idea that this war was well in hand and troops were going to begin to be withdrawn in time. And so this was just a really a bracing shock uh, to the American public and, uh, and definitely something that raised serious questions about the likelihood that this was going to be a short and easy war. In the title of the book, A Turning Point in the War uh, of the American War in Vietnam, um, this is people are familiar with this as a as a turning point, but it sounds like you don't agree that this was 
uh, that, that the media forced us to lose this war, right? That, that this wasn't an instance of we could have this showed that we would have won if we had stayed, but that the media wanted the media perception changed things so that we withdrew. So I mean, what are some, I mean, this has been around a lot of books been written on Vietnam. Uh, people are, are, are familiar with, with Tet. What are some of the aspects of your research that, that came up that people may not be familiar with when they look at this period in history? Well, it was an enormous surprise to the American military that the North Vietnamese could mount an offensive and take the third largest city in South Vietnam, which they did almost without contest. And from the beginning, um, one of the things that I found was the General Westmoreland and the military command denied that the city had been taken, and not just to the public, but in cables to the White House and to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and continued to deny it for weeks, while, um, you know, uh, at least initially, a very inadequate uh, Marine force was being ordered to take the city back. It ultimately took them 24 days to do it. And, And while I write about the battle, I'm also writing about the reporter's who went to Hue and who began writing stories within the first day or two, which I believe were correct and which directly contradicted the official line on what was going on there. We're speaking to Mark Bowden. His new book is Hue, 1968, uh, and he's also the author of Black Hawk Down and and Killing Pablo, as well as many other critically acclaimed works. Um, Mark, what would you want people, and given right now we are... Uh, past a decade of fighting in Afghanistan, uh, do you think that there are, are, are lessons that are applicable uh, from from your research into what happened during TED and, and, and Hue specifically for some of the problems that we currently face in the war on terror? Yeah, without question. I think that, you know, one large lesson that I think we I would take away from this is that if you there seems to be this sort of polarity in America's foreign policy where from time to time we have political leaders who, in effect, try to impose their theories of the world on the world itself to the exclusion of a deep understanding of the complexity of situations in various parts of the world. In the case of Southeast Asia, I think the overriding um, narrative was that the United States was um, battling a sort of monolithic a communist threat that was spreading all over the globe, and they were, you know, putting a stop to it in in Vietnam. And I think it becomes apparent to anyone who really looks at what was happening in Vietnam in the 1960s, 1950s, and 60s that it was a considerably more complicated story than that. Uh, that the movement um, uh, of the Viet Cong, backed by the North Vietnamese, was every bit as much an independence movement as it was a communist one. And, uh, and that the regime that we were supporting in South Vietnam was hardly uh, worth the uh, uh, America's effort. So I think that the lesson is to pay more attention to the facts on the ground than to the um, uh, political theories that sometimes drive American foreign policy. Uh, Mark Bowden, author of Hue, 1968, A Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam. Thank you for joining, sir. My pleasure, Buck. Team, uh, thank you so much for joining me tonight on the show. Uh, until next time, as always, Shields High.